And uh, please take your Bibles and turn them to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. You thought I was going to say John. We'll get to John in a moment. But we're going to look at Genesis 3, and we're going to look at John 20. And we're going to talk this morning about how these two things fit together, these two stories. Genesis chapter 3. So it got me again, um, no matter how many times I watch it, uh, and no matter how many times I try to be stoic and unemotional about it, sooner or later, I always end up crying during the viewing of the Return of the King movie. And we watched it again recently. I guess it's a, a rite of passage in the Webb household as Elijah had not yet seen the trilogy, and it was a great excuse to fire up the movies again and watch them. But man, I tried not to get emotional, but I did again. And one of the parts that often gets me is that in the darkest moment of the story, when despair is at its zenith, and it seems like evil has won, and there's no way to change that, that at the last moment, through a shocking, unexpected reversal of events, good wins. It's a spoiler, in case you haven't seen it. J.R.R. Tolkien calls this, a moment like this, a eucatastrophe. That's a word he made up. A good catastrophe. Uh, He describes it as the sudden, happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears. It's a dramatic reversal of events, and we love eucatastrophes and stories. And I think one of the reasons why we love it is because we long for it so often in our own lives. Most of you know what it's like to be in a horrible, dark, depressing situation where you feel like there is no way out, and you long for a change. You long for a breakthrough. You long for a reversal of events in your story, for things to be rewritten, for the damage done to be undone, and your powerlessness to change that story to the happy ending you long for can lead to hopelessness and despair. Every single one of us in this room knows that our story is not perfect, and we intuitively know that the universe is broken, that the world we live in should be better than the world that we are experiencing. And if we have ears to hear the Scriptures, we know exactly where everything went wrong. And we're about to read about it right now in Genesis chapter 3. Why don't you stand with me out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our God, Genesis chapter 3. God's Word says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever? Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man... And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now take your Bibles and turn turn them over to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. So what we just read about in John 3 were events that devastated the cosmos, where the story of the universe takes a dark turn, lies were told, lies were believed, hostile separation followed, condemnation resulted, and death was unleashed. And the whole universe in that moment was put under a curse. Now, if anyone recognized that the universe is cursed and broken, and the world is not right, and the world is not as it should be, it is a woman named Mary Magdalene. Let's read her story right now in John chapter 20. The word of the Lord says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. 
So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. And then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary Magdalene stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher, And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you give us help and guidance this morning through the Holy Spirit? for us to see and hear your message in this Word, to rightly divide it, to rightly understand it, to be blessed and encouraged and and convicted and given hope by it. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So when the story begins, again you have Mary Magdalene who knows, who has all, of the, all these things that she has seen in the past few days, she knows more than anyone else that the world is not right, that the world is not as it should be. In the darkness of that early Sunday morning 2,000 years ago, as she's finding her way by torchlight to the tomb of Jesus. If anyone starting out that morning recognized that they were powerless to reverse the story, it was Mary in grief and in despair with no hope for her future. But she starts that day not realizing that the story of redemption is about to, about to come full circle. And as we follow Mary Magdalene through the streets of Jerusalem and outside the city, guess what? We find ourselves once again in a garden. And as she is standing there, looking in shock at a gravestone that has been rolled away, peering into the darkness of that tomb, what she does not realize is that her story is about to change because the, her, the story of the universe has changed. And with that comes a new hope for Mary and for an entire world groaning under the weight of a cursed creation, indeed even 
for you. Everything that went wrong in that first garden in Eden at the dawn of humanity, the the lies, the separation, the condemnation, even death itself, is in this moment being reversed and undone. And so the empty tomb serves as a sign of the, the many things that Jesus is now doing. The empty tomb, first of all, serves as a sign that Jesus turns back death and brings forth life. Look at verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Mary is coming into this garden not looking for a resurrection, but a corpse. Gospel of Mark tells us that she comes bringing spices to anoint the body, to preserve the the corpse for just a little bit longer, to slow down the, the corruption and the decay that inevitably happens to every other corpse. And the text says, she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. Now, grave robbers were not uncommon in the first century. And so again, not expecting a resurrection, this could be a logical conclusion. But before you judge Mary, be careful, because Mary is doing what you often do and what I often do. I think I can make a pretty good case that one of the most disobeyed verses in the entire Bible is Proverbs 3, 5, that says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. Mary's problem in this moment, and our problem is that often we interpret the circumstances of our lives, our stories, based on our own understanding. We come to the wrong conclusions about what's happening in our lives because we come to these conclusions apart from the wisdom of God as revealed in His Word. That's often why, like Mary, in the darkest moments of our lives, we find ourselves in a pit of emotional darkness and despair, judging reality wrongly. So a crisis comes, and what do we do? We panic. Could be a financial crisis, could be a relationship crisis, uh, could be a health crisis, and often our instinct is to try to figure out what is going on without any reference to the truths of Scripture and the promises of God and the knowledge of God's character and the truths of the gospel. We don't turn to the Scriptures and let our thoughts be governed by that, to let our conclusions be governed by that. We instead let them be governed by our own feelings and our own understanding. And the result of doing that is always disastrous. We freak out. We panic. We make bad choices. We descend into fear and anxiety and insecurity or guilt or anger or confusion, causing ourselves needless trouble and angst. Because if if what the psalmist said is true, that your word, God, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, then to set aside God's word in a time of crises is to extinguish the lamp and be in darkness. That's going to inevitably affect how you view the story of your life and how you respond to the things that are happening to you. It's it's affecting Mary. Despite the fact that time and again, Jesus made it plain that He would suffer, 
that he would die and that he would rise again, despite the fact that the Old Testament Scriptures themselves testified to this. But almost all of Jesus' followers vehemently rejected that notion, and they put it out of their minds because they thought that their version of the story was better than God's. Imagine how different the start of Mary's day would have been if she started Sunday morning anchoring her thoughts and feelings and interpretation of circumstances based on what Jesus said, based on the Word of God. It would have been a totally different start to Sunday morning. She probably would have been camping out in expectation of what was going to happen. How different might this day be for you if you would more diligently seek to think about every situation in your life in light of what God says. Well, back in our text, the confused Mary tells Peter and John about this, and they investigate, and all they see are grave clothes, those, those linen cloths that would have been saturated in spices to preserve the corpse, these symbols of death and decay. They're just sitting there unused in the tomb. Verse 7 says that that face cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head has now been neatly folded up and set aside as if the one whom those items were for doesn't need them anymore. And everyone is shocked, and everyone is surprised. Why? Look at verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that He must rise from the dead. All the while they had been leaning on their own understanding. And their own understanding says that when you go to a tomb, you see death. Because that's how it's always been from the very beginning. In that first garden in Eden long ago, God warned Adam, the day that you eat of the tree that I have forbidden you to eat from will be the day that you surely die. So revolt against God brings the curse of God to the entire universe And therefore, when they send Adam's body and Eve's body and the bodies of all their progeny, including you and me, succumb to death and decay and corruption, turning back into the dust. Now, Mary and Peter and John, they would have been familiar with those Scriptures. But if they paid closer attention, if they had ears to hear, They would have also heard Psalm 1610, where King David, writing of God, declares that you, God, will not abandon me to the grave. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. David there is speaking of a death, but of a death that is temporary. And the Apostle Paul, preaching to his fellow Jews in Acts 13, interprets this psalm for us when he says, For David fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So Paul takes this Davidic psalm, and he says that it's been fulfilled in Jesus. Yes, Jesus did die, but decay and corruption only come if you stay dead. And Mary has come to this tomb expecting to find him still dead. And when she sees the body gone, she is distraught. In verse 11, we find Mary weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And when she looks into that tomb, she doesn't see any evidence of the decay and corruption that began in the first garden, in Eden, long ago. Instead, verse 12 says, she saw two angels in white 
sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. So again, we have come full circle. The cherubim were there in that first garden, and so angels are present in this second garden. But in that first garden, in Genesis 3, the cherubim with the flaming sword were present to enforce God's decree that the man and the woman be banished from the garden to be exiled from the life of God and the home that they were made for. But in John 20, the angels don't wield flaming swords enforcing God's curse blocking the way to the garden, the place of life. They're, they're instead sitting in the tomb and essentially telling Mary, you don't belong here. And Luke chapter 24, they ask, why do you seek the living among the dead? What are you doing here? They are sending her away from the tomb, away from the place of death, the place of curse, and they're sending her back into the garden. So while the story of the first garden ends in curse and death, in the second garden, death is turned backwards, signaling the start of a new beginning, a new order that is coming to the universe, characterized by blessing and life. And so Mary sent back into the garden because, and this is my second point, that Jesus undoes separation and initiates reconciliation. Look at verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I, and I will take him away. Mary does not recognize Jesus. She regards him as one whom she has no connection with, no relationship with at all. Now, in that first garden, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, the immediate effect was separation. The Bible says in Genesis 3 that when they heard God coming, and when Adam hears the voice of God calling out his name, they treat God like a stranger. They no longer know God. They no longer trust God. They don't recognize Him anymore for who He really is, and they hide. And when hiding doesn't work, Adam turns around and he blames God. He says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, it's your fault, God. So now, not only does Adam see God as a stranger, but as a threat, as an enemy, and this attitude towards God has lived on in all of Adam's descendants. Romans 8, 7 says that all of us, left to ourselves, apart from the grace of God working in our lives, are hostile towards God. We will all rage against God and fight against God while trying to hide from God. We are outlaws on the run from God, on the run from justice, and we will distract ourselves uh, with our jobs our hobbies, our families, our sinful pleasures, our false religions, our entertainment, and with a million other things so that we don't have to deal with God, and we hope that we can fly under the radar, and maybe God won't notice us hiding, like, like Adam hiding in those trees in the garden. And we hope He'll just leave us alone and that He will not hold us to account. Now, why is that? Because 
Jesus is the light, and he says the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But we also see in that first garden not only the breakdown of the vertical relationship between God and man, but inevitably when the vertical relationship with God is broken, our horizontal relationships with one another also become broken. And so Adam says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, it's all her fault. If anyone should receive the death penalty for this, kill her. And so we see Adam and Eve alienated and separated from one another, seeking to blame one another to get the upper hand in the relationship. God says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband to control him, to manipulate him. But the man is going to rule over you. He's going to put you under his thumb and try to control you. And so Adam and Eve, under the curse, are given over to their sinful, selfish desires as they treat one another like enemies, as they in their selfishness bite and devour one another. Now, that is the story of the whole human race, is it not? Played out in marriages and in families and in ethnic tensions and in nations with missiles pointed at one another. That's part of the legacy of the curse of what happened in the first garden. But in the second garden, we see something different. Mary does not realize whom she is talking with. She thinks he is the the gardener. And so in her ignorance, she asks this man for help, and the God who is standing before her calls out her name. Verse 16, Jesus says, Mary. And she turns around and says to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, master, teacher, it's you. Jesus speaks And in that instant, Mary recognizes her shepherd as Jesus said in John chapter 10 that the sheep follow the shepherd because they hear and recognize his voice. When Mary hears the sound of her Lord God in the garden in the cool of the day calling her name, her reaction is not withdrawal. It's not a fearful hiding like Adam and Eve. It's the exact opposite. It's pure joy. It's clinging to Jesus. She's holding on to him, and she does not want to let go. And then Jesus says some of the most amazing words ever uttered. In verse 17, Jesus said to her, Go to my brothers. Jesus calls his disciples brothers. Think about that. Who are these people? Peter, who denied Jesus three times. Thomas, who struggles with doubt. James and John, who sought to exalt themselves over the other disciples by seeking to sit at Jesus' right hand and left hand in the coming kingdom. These 11 men who, on that fateful night when Jesus was arrested, they ran away, they scattered, they abandoned Jesus, separating themselves from Christ. Jesus knows their sins. He knows their weaknesses. He knows the times that they have let him down, and he knows the times they will let him down. Jesus knows all of this, and he calls these men brothers. Have you ever thought of yourself 
as being a brother or sister of Jesus? Have you ever thought of Jesus as your elder brother? It almost seems irreverent. It almost seems scandalous because you know how much of a sinner you are. You know how undeserving and unworthy you are to have that title of a brother or sister of Jesus, how unworthy you are to have a seat at the Father's table right next to Jesus. But while the, the, the story in that first garden ends with man being separated and exiled from the household of God, in this second garden we see God reversing the story. We were enemies of God. But the gospel tells us that God takes the initiative to bring about reconciliation through adopting us into His family, turning former enemies into friends, even family. And God adopts people like you and people like me into His family, not because we're worthy, we're not, and it's not because we're good, because we weren't. Instead, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says, in love He predestined us for adoption to Himself. He does it because He loves you. And if we are adopted into the family of God, if we are brothers and sisters of Jesus, that also means that every believer in this room are brothers and sisters with one another. Family. Bound together, not by blood, but through the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters. Because God, through the gospel, is not only rewriting the separation between God and man, but is reversing the story of hostility and division between us that has its roots in the garden, that first garden. And so Paul writes to the ethnically divided church in Ephesus, and he's telling them that Jesus, through the gospel, is reversing all of their division and hatred, making them into one united group, bringing about reconciliation. And he says this, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. But all that begs the question, how? How does God do this? How can an all-good, all-pure, all-righteous, all-holy Father who cannot look upon sin without judging it and condemning it, how can a sinful, dirty, rebellious wretch like Deemer Webb have a place at the Father's table? Well, we can because Jesus also cleanses guilt and offers innocence. Mary came to that garden that Sunday morning weeping and despairing because of all the awful things that had happened on Friday. She does not realize the glorious thing that actually happened that Friday. As Mary looked at Jesus on that cross, bleeding and dying, she did not realize that the reason why Christ was mocked and spat upon and rejected, the reason why life left Jesus' body and that corpse was sealed away in a tomb, the reason for all that was for her. Because Mary was a rebellious sinner, separated from God. Her story was so dark that seven demons had taken up residence inside her body. This same woman had become a follower of Jesus. 
she would have given anything to reverse the story and rescue Jesus from the cross, but she did not realize that Jesus did not need rescuing, but that she needed rescuing. Because it wasn't enough for Mary to have demons cast out of her. It wasn't enough for Mary to follow Jesus around as a disciple. Because having demons cast out of you and having an association with Jesus ultimately doesn't do anything for you if you are still under condemnation and guilty of sin. Jesus did not come mainly to heal people of diseases and cast out demons and acquire a large crowd of followers because those things can't ultimately save anybody. And so Jesus came primarily to deal with Mary's biggest problem and your biggest problem and my biggest problem, which is our guilt and condemnation. And on the cross, Jesus suffered the fullness of separation from God in in, in the place of sinners who deserved it. And so on the cross, he cries out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now that cry is the cry of a condemned man suffering the torments of hell, which is exile from the enjoyment of God's presence, being forsaken by God because we forsook him. But Jesus came as a substitute to absorb that hell in the place of sinners like us. And after taking the sin of the world upon himself and receiving punishment for sins on behalf of sinners, Jesus in this second garden turns to Mary and says something mind-blowing. He says, I am ascending, in verse 17, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now, what does that mean? It means that Jesus isn't like Adam. Adam, in that first garden, is hiding and running away from the presence of God because he is guilty and in shame and under condemnation, and he knows it. But in the second garden, Jesus, the last Adam, says that he is not only not running and hiding from God, but he is boldly going into the presence of God, unashamed, without fear, without guilt, without condemnation, because his death on the cross, though for sins, was not for his own sin because he had no sin. The fact that Jesus is standing there in that second garden, alive and well, and ready to be received by his heavenly Father is the ultimate proof that Jesus' payment for sins was accepted by God the Father. And so the psalmist writes in Psalm 24, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And there's only one man whom that psalm perfectly applies to. But if Jesus did not walk out of that tomb into that garden on that Sunday morning, it would mean that you and I are fools for being here this Sunday morning. Because if Jesus is still in the grave, it would demonstrate that he didn't have clean hands, and he didn't have a pure heart, and that he was exactly like the first Adam, exactly like us which would mean that he died for his own sins. And if he died for his own sins, he can't pay for ours. And if that's true, you and I are still condemned, men and women, on death row. And that's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. But Jesus' presence in that garden that morning and his announcement that he will ascend to the Father is proof that God has accepted him and his payment for sins. And if you believe in Jesus, 
and receive by faith His sacrifice on the cross, then you will find that your sin is now totally dealt with, paid in full, because you've made a trade with Jesus. He took your sin on the cross, and you take His righteousness upon yourself. That's a pretty good deal. The dirty, tattered, soiled rags of your sin and rebellion are gone, and you've been now clothed with the holiness and purity of Christ. In Christ, you are forgiven, and you are innocent. Therefore, you too can ascend the hill of the Lord because your hands have been made clean and your heart has been made pure by the blood of Christ. That's exactly why Jesus says, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father. He's your Father now too. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Did you know that Jesus is not ashamed of you? Some of you really need to, that to sink in because, because you're wallowing in, 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 in all of these, the, the sense of, of, of guilt and, and shame, even though you're a Christian and you're thinking about things that you have done. Jesus isn't ashamed of you. He's not ashamed to call you as a family member, not ashamed to have you at his table. Jesus also, through the empty tomb, destroys lies and gives the truth. In that first garden long ago, a woman listened to the lies of an evil spirit, listened to the devil, lies that were slandering the goodness and faithfulness and wonderful provision of God. And and she believes that lie, and the serpent leads her on a mission to tell her husband that lie. And the husband listens to her, and both of them And all of us fall under the deceit and the blindness and the bondage of the devil because of that. But in John 20, we again come to a garden, and we come again to a woman. And Mary of Magdala, this formerly demonized woman under the bondage of the devil, a woman who had been told lies and deceived by the serpent for so long now hears glorious words of truth from her God. And she not only believes that truth, but she is given a mission to tell what she has heard. Jesus says, go and tell my brothers. You, Mary, you, you go to those men, and you tell them what has happened, and tell them what I've done, and tell them what I'm going to do. You, Mary, will be the bearer of this truth of this good news. And so verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Mary speaks God's truth. She proclaims God's goodness and faithfulness and wonderful provision in Christ, and she urges the men to trust the word of the Lord. It's the exact opposite of what Eve did in that first garden. Because here in the second garden, God is destroying the lies of the devil. And he uses this woman who was once under the oppression of the serpent to become the first evangelist in the church. First, in a chain of witnesses that, spre- that, that spreads the gospel to the ends of the earth, bringing salvation to the world and eventually to you. 
J.R.R. Tolkien said that a eucatastrophe is the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears. And he goes on to write that the resurrection was the greatest eucatastrophe possible in the greatest story and produces that essential emotion, Christian joy. In other words, the truth of the resurrection should change everything because the narrative of the entire universe has been suddenly reversed through this one great event. And if that's true, that means that all of our smaller stories, which are bound up in this larger story, are changed as well. Nothing goes unaffected by this eucatastrophe. Every aspect of our story is impacted, and here are just three ways. Three ways, and then I'm done. First, the resurrection of Christ changes how we view the story of our past. There are some of you in this room who are in bondage to the past. You can't shake the feelings of shame and guilt and condemnation. Maybe it's something that you did last week. Maybe it's something you did 20 years ago, and it continues to haunt you to this day. But when the gospel story intersects with your story, it doesn't change your past, but it radically changes and reverses how you live in response to your past because Colossians 2, 14, 14 says that Jesus has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That thing that is haunting you so much, brother or sister, consider it nailed to the cross and leave it there. And the fact that Jesus was standing in that garden, ready to receive, <clears throat> ready to be received to his fa- by his Father, <clears throat> And by your father, his proof, <clears throat> it's the evidence that the debt has been paid in full, that all of the condemnation and guilt and shame your sin deserves has been totally dealt with by Jesus, and you are totally forgiven. To be a Christian while being in bondage to guilt and shame from the past is to lean on your own understanding and not on the Scripture that says that if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The resurrection of Christ changes how you view the story of your past. But also, secondly, the resurrection of Christ provides us with the promise of hope for our present. Many of us are going through great trials and difficulty right now. And often, because we lean on our own understanding, we misinterpret reality. And we think that our present suffering means that God's ignoring us, or worse, that God is against us. But because Jesus was standing in that garden alive and well, it actually is the definitive proof that God is on your side. Because Paul says in Romans 8.29, for those whom God foreknew, that's you, Christian, For those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be firstborn among many brothers. Friends, that's why Jesus was raised. Jesus stood in that garden as the firstborn in a family of a multitude. 
perfect and pure and holy and glorified. That's our destiny as well. But here's how it relates to your life right now. God is conforming you to perfectly image Christ in the future, and He's doing it through His work in your life right now, in the present. That's the whole point of the, of the prior verse, Romans 8, 28, which says that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things, including your cancer, including your present financial struggle, including the heartbreak you are experiencing because of a broken relationship or a lost job or persecution, any other thing that you are going through is counted in the all things that he's talking about. Because the resurrection is true, that promise is true. And because that promise is true, you no longer are to see yourself as a hopeless victim of the sufferings and hardships of life at the mercy of the darkness and evil that's in this world. Instead, the things that are coming at you in your life are not things that will ultimately destroy you. Instead, God is using those things to serve you. He is working those things together for good. That's why Paul can write confidently a little later on, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Now, notice that Paul doesn't say those things won't happen, those afflictions, those sufferings. The Bible actually promises that they will happen, but that's not the end of the story. And because of Christ's victory over the grave, Paul then goes on to say, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. But it gets better. Not only does the resurrection of Christ change how we view the story of the past, and not only does it provide us with the promise of hope for our present, but the resurrection of Christ provides us with the expectation of glory for the future. Adam's sin plunged the universe into a state of decay and corruption and death. And we look around at our world and we see evil and we see injustice and heartache and pain. And we, we have been exiled from the home that we were made for and we all know it. But because Jesus was standing in that garden three days after He died, not as some ghost, but as a real man with a beating heart and warm blood pulsing through his veins, that reality tells us where the story is ultimately headed. Hardship and suffering is not the end of the story. Jesus' eucatastrophe in the garden is heralding a new order, a new world, a restored universe. And that reality gives Paul encouragement in his sufferings, which is why he can confidently write that we do not lose heart, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen 
are eternal. He writes elsewhere in the book of Romans that I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Paul is speaking of a day when the resurrected Jesus will return to this world and we will be made just like Him. That, that conformity that God is doing in us will be complete. Like Christ, we will be perfect. Like Christ, we'll be sinless. Like Christ, we'll have uh, resurrected and transformed bodies. And the whole world will be made perfect. And the glory of what is to come is so amazing and so spectacular that it will make the most intense of our present afflictions seem small by comparison. And it is the expectation of that hope that is to be the encouragement that keeps us moving forward in this present age and protects us from despair. And the resurrection of Jesus is the deposit. It's the down payment. It's the thing that gives us the hopeful assurance that what we see now is temporary because something better is coming. And that final, eucatastrophic, happy ending that our souls long for desperately will at long last be realized. After he wrote the Gospel of John, the Apostle John wrote another book called Revelation. And he gives us a glimpse of the future glory to come as the reconciliation between Jesus and His people, which began in this garden 2,000 years ago, will one day be fully consummated in, in, as Jesus' perfected bride, that's us, and He are brought together in loving fellowship forever. And so John writes, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her, her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. If that doesn't give you hope, I don't, I got nothing else for you. It should give you hope. Because at long last, on that great day, you and I will return to the home that we were made for, that we long for. It's, it, it will be like a return to Eden, but much better. Because this time there will be no serpents. And there will never again be an open door for sin and curse again. And this paradise will be eternal. And we will live happily ever after. And we know that this is no mere fairy tale. We know that this story is true. Because Christ has risen from the dead. Let's pray.